0: What God did, He establishes something with His people that their mind would be thinking about what they should be thinking about.
1: Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Did you make a New Year's resolution this year? Today, Pastor Jeff describes an annual event recorded in Leviticus, the Day of Atonement. It was observed at the start of the year so God's people would stop and remember where they'd come from.
0: What is called Rosh Hashanah. It's the start of their new year. So the shofar would blow the trumpet and that would begin 10 days of awe. God said to His people, I want you to sit in solitude and quietness. I want you to stop working. I just want you to sit and think about where should your head be?
1: This is Today with Jeff Vines.
0: I want you to turn in your Bibles to, yes, it's not a mistake, Leviticus. In the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 16. We're going to revisit something, but we got a different angle, something we need to do this time of year for sure. I wanted to have a chance to ask you a pretty crucial question. Uh, Where's your head? Where's your thinking? Now, you know, this is a time of year everybody's going to make these resolutions, right? And a lot of it's going to have to do with your weight, or the shape you're in, right? Or some addiction that you have that you want to stop, or at least minimize. Uh, Some of you are going to make some resolutions that have to do, you, you, you want to make more money. You still think that your happiness is tied to how much money's in the bank, so that's your big thing this year. I'm going to get a promotion, I'm going to make more money, I'm going to buy that car, I'm going to live in that part of the... City or community, and because you still think your happiness and your contentment's all tied to that, and so some of us are going to make those. Uh, matter of fact, 78% of Americans are going to make resolutions that are tied to money or their weight. <laughs> I guess we think we're fat, I don't know what it is, but okay. Uh, now, if you take that and then you think about what's going on in a great deal of the other part of the world, because 50% of the people in the world live on $2 or less a day. 50%. 80% live on $10 or less a day. So you're most of you are in the top 20% in the world of wealth. It's amazing, isn't it? It's all in perspective. But what God did He establishes something with his people so that he could make sure that when a new season, a new year began, that their thinking would be where it really should be. Not on weight, not on money, not on stuff. He institutes something to make sure that his people, those who call him their father, when a new year would come around, that their mind would be thinking about what they should be thinking about. They'd be contemplating. And in Leviticus 16... This New Year's annual event is described as the people, some 210,000 people gathered around the tabernacle and celebrated what is called Rosh Hashanah. It's the start of their New Year. So the shofar would blow the trumpet and that would begin 10 days of awe. And in those 10 days leading up to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, God said to his people, I want you to sit in solitude and quietness. I want you to stop working. I just want you to sit and think about what you should be thinking about. Where should your head be? Now, our heads go everywhere. I remember my high school basketball coach, one of the most frustrating things he had with me was I was so ADD. you know We didn't talk about that back then because had we talked about that, they would have put me in a straight jacket and on all kinds of medication. Uh, So I turned out okay, I think. Uh, What was I talking about? Oh yeah, ADD. (laughs) ADD. So my coach would say, Vines, where's your head, man? Because I don't know, sometimes during the game, I'd have that moment when I'd zone out a little bit. And you missed your defensive assignment. He'd call timeout and call, where's your head? And you know, I wanted to say, well, it's on the third cheerleader from the right over on the side. Because you know, when you're 17 or 18, come on, where's your head? Where's your mind? So God does the same kind of thing. People like, where's your head, man? What are you thinking about? And he describes this great feast. And When God wanted his people to think about something, he did it with a celebration of some kind. So before I get into this in in Leviticus 16, uh, I got to remind you of the difference between the Western culture and the East. In the West, when we're trying to describe something, we do it in proposition and definition. So if I'm going to describe something like grace to you, I'm going to attach words to it, unmerited favor, undeserved mercy. That's Western culture, proposition, definition. But in the East, man, now, it's not that they didn't use words. I mean, God used words when he wrote the Ten Commandments, right? He wrote them on stone. So words did matter. But when God wanted to communicate something very deep and meaningful to his people, he did it not so much by word as illustration. And he used this idea of feast more than anything else. So there are all kinds of feasts they would celebrate. And every part of the feast, every detail of the feast the manner in which the food was, uh, was prepared, the timing of the meal, the very menu itself were all images that were meant to help people show how they were supposed to relate to God and how God would relate to them. You with me? So God wanted to give them a vivid picture of this is, what this is where your head's supposed to be when you start a new year, a new cycle of life. Now, a good example, that's the Passover feast, right? Most of us know they have unleavened bread, right? So part of the Passover feast is to have unleavened bread. Why unleavened bread? Well, it was a symbol for hundreds of years. When you celebrate this feast, it would remind you that when you left Egypt, you left in a hurry. The idea is that the bread didn't have time to rise. So you've got unleavened bread. Uh, what's interesting about the word translated unleavened uh, matzo, is also a word that means, and I'll bet some of you didn't know this, sweetness. So the idea was when you see the unleavened bread, it's not only haste, it's also the sweetness of where God is taking you into the promised land flowing with milk and honey. Now, most important to the people of God concerning these feasts is God said, when you participate in these feasts, I'm actually going to come down and meet with you and I'm going to reveal to you a little part of myself. So the only way we can know anything about God is if God chooses to reveal himself. So what he decided to do was reveal himself through the feast to his people in the Old Testament. The word for feast is mikrah. Now, do you know what mikrah means? You say, well, you just told me feast. It does, but it also means rehearsal. So whatever the feast celebrates, mikrah, M-I-K-R-A-H, whatever it celebrates, it celebrates what happened in the past, but it's also a foreshadowing for what's going to come one day. So now here we have in Leviticus chapter 16, I pick up the story in verse 2 as God gives instructions Of how this day after the 10 days, so we've done the 10 days of introspection, we've done the 10 days of isolation, and now comes the time of Yom Kippur, and God is giving instructions. Now, I'm not going to tell you everything up front. You're going to have to follow through the instructions. It's kind of going to be revealed over the next 10, 15 minutes here. In verse 2 of of, of, of Leviticus uh, chapter 16, the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he's not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark. So in the original language, Yahweh says to Moshe, God says to Moses, you tell Aaron that when he brings those 210,000 people up the hill, not to just waltz into the Holy of Holies like he's going to Burger King. You tell him he better dress up because he's there to meet God. Now, if you ever wonder, some of you younger people, why older people used to dress up when they came to church suit and tie, well, this comes all the way from the Old Testament that when you meet God, you're supposed to be presentable. That's another sermon. (laughs) So God says, Aaron, when, when you come in, I want you to put on the full vestments, man. I want you to dress up for this. I want you to put on all the garments. I want you to put on the breastplate, the breastpiece. I want the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. I want you to come into my presence presentable because you're in a holy place. This is a house of God. So in verse 3, he also says, Aaron you got to bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So before I, ha- before I use you as a representative to deal with the people so I can get their head in the right place, i got to deal with your sin and the sins of your family. So you bring in a young bull to sacrifice for your sin. And then if you read verse 4, let me summarize it. He says, the dress code is not smart casual, Aaron. <laughs> I want you to wear a sacred linen tunic. I want you to wear sacred linen undergarments. And I want you to wear sacred linen sash. The the linen word is sesh. It means white and pure and unspoiled. Do you know it's the same garments in Revelation 19 when the rider on the white horse returns and the archangel and all the armies are behind him, they've got the same type of clothing on. What's the the message? The message is, this is about righteousness and holiness. And by the way, Aaron, God says, I want you to take a bath. Mikbah. I want you to go down into the water because there's no use putting on these unspoiled clothing if you're spoiled yourself. Take a bath. Bottom line, when you come into my presence, you'll come clean without blemish into my sight. Now, you got to understand the people of Israel, they took this very seriously unbelievably seriously. As a matter of fact, they assigned someone to make sure that the priest who was going to represent the people in this celebration would keep him awake all night. Why? Why? so he didn't go to sleep and have any bad dreams. Also, they would have a bride waiting for him in case his wife died. Then he would marry so that there would be no stain of death on him as he represented the people. It was God's way of saying, I want the priest clean. I want the tabernacle clean. I want my people clean. And attached to all of this was this unbelievable euphoria. I mean, it was crazy. 210,000 people around the temple.
1: This is Today with Jeff Vines. Pastor Jeff is asking, where is your head? What are we focused on and where are our priorities? Let's continue now.
0: It was crazy, 210,000 people around the temple with all this excitement and passion. Now, I grew up in the Eastern part of Tennessee. We used to have a good football team. For years, we were good. We're not very good anymore. Thanks to Lane Kiffin, but that's another sermon. But uh, if you go to the Tennessee football stadium, I think for a long time, it was the largest collegiate football stadium in America, 105,000 people. And it's a sea of orange. And everybody in the stadium's best friends on game day. As a matter of fact, they're pretty, uh, uh, they're not so nice <laughs> because they, they refuse to sell a lot of tickets to the opposing team because they want nothing but orange and white in the stadium. And it's euphoria. And every time the running back gets the ball, the crowd just stands, man, on their feet, the possibilities. Now take that 105,000 stadium, double it, because the temple is going to have 210,000 worshipers. The 12 tribes camped around the tent of meeting in the outer room, the inner room. You're going to have three tribes, three, six, nine, 12 on four sides of the temple. And they're going to be congregated in this place. And the euphoria. People have written, we have ancient letters, for instance, from a guy, we have one letter from a guy named uh, Aristeas, who says, when he witnessed the day, it looked like he had been transported out of this world into another. Let me read it to you. He says, it was an occasion of great amazement to us when we saw Eleazar, the high priest, engaged in his ministry in all the glorious vestments, including the wearing of the garment with precious stones upon it in which he is vested. There, the priest's appearance made one awestruck and dumbfounded. A man would think he had come out of this world into another. I emphatically assert that every man who comes near this spectacle of what I have described will experience astonishment and amazement beyond words. There was something about the high priest, the temple, the arrangement, the ritual, that when you saw it transported you somewhere else. (coughs) So something was about to happen and all the people knew it. And they even saying what David calls a Psalm of Ascent. So as the 210,000 people, that's a lot of people making their way into the stadium They're singing psalms like Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the mountain. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. So they would sing this song over and over again, walking up and then everybody would be in place. And then the priest... Let me, let me summarize. You got these 10 days of isolation, 10 days of thinking about what, where your head should be, what you should be thinking about in the coming year. And then the priest, the one dude, represents the 210,000. He goes in to represent all of the people before God. And we're told in verse five that he takes something with him. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So he takes two goats. And then he casts lots, the Bible says. And one lands on one goat, one lands on the other. One is for the Lord and one is a scapegoat. Now look carefully at verse 9. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. So the first goat you have as atonement. Look, think about this word atonement. If you break it up, our English word is at-one-ment, which means at-one-with. So the idea of atonement is that there's something separating you from somebody else. You're not at one with them. And something needs to happen for that barrier to be crossed. So the first goat is sacrifice. And it is an image to show the people how serious sin really is before God. You've got a goat uh, who, who is basically slaughtered. This is the vivid picture. Uh, and before you judge the Old Testament and God, get out of your own cultural bias and realize that if God were doing it in today's culture, it might be done a different way. But this is how God did it. Then it was a vivid picture and image of the seriousness of sin. And there's nothing more serious than death, even of an animal. But there's a second goat, and it's called the scapegoat. Where the first one was to cover over sin, the scapegoat was transference. It was where the priest would take his hands and lay it on the head of the goat. And all 10,000, 210,000 people, all their sins would go from the hands to the head of that goat. Verse 10, but the goat chosen by Lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now, remember, we said picture versus words. Do you know what the word for goat is? Azazel. Do you know what Azazel means? You said, well, yeah, you just told me goat. It has dual meaning. It means the removal of something. And it usually has the connotations of something demonic. Now, I don't know if Adam, when he named goats, goats named them Azazel then, but I know that it evolved into this meaning. A goat was an Azazel and Azazel means the removing of something. So the general idea is that the priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat and then the goat would be, scapegoat would be escorted out into the wilderness and dropped off a cliff. And the idea was that all the sins of the people was going into isolation and never would return. Now, They would hire a Gentile to take the goat out. All the Jews are in the tabernacle. But they would hire an outside source, a Gentile, to take the goat out. And as he marched the goat out, they would have this red cord around the top of his head that would leave a red ring and they'd tie the red cord to the altar of the temple. So he would lead him out. Now, as he's leading him out, there'd be this euphoria because they're saying, look, all of our sins of 2017, look at this. This is fantastic. They're going. We didn't come with this idea. God did, and we like it. So, this goat would be escorted by the Gentile, and you know what they'd be screaming? Take him away, take him away, take him away, take him away. And as he goes out, there's just celebration and the relief that God's not going to punish their sin, that the scapegoat is going to go out. And you know, you're not going to see this goat come back and appear in your backyard two weeks later, you know, oops, there he is again. Oh man, there's my sin. How did he get in here? I thought I locked that gate. And so the point is he's gone now and all the sins are gone. And the people knew that meant their sins have been forgiven. Forgiven. And they're thinking to themselves, wow, we dodged a bullet there. You can always think of the one guy. I don't know why. Every time I read this story, the one guy who thinks, oh man, there's no way that scapegoat's going to get out of here this year because I know what I've done. And there is no way God's going to forgive me for that. And he's just desperate and he's weeping. He knows this year God's going to call for justice because God is under no obligation to send the scapegoat out. Every year is a new year, but every year he does so you can see this one guy thinking, man, I, 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 I'm doomed. God's going to call for justice. And then as the goat is walked out, he finds it unbelievable. I can't believe this. <laughs> My sin. Is this really happening? And I can just see him getting down on his knees and weeping because he's been forgiven. Psalm 103 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he has removed our transgressions from us, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Now, let me get your attention here for a second. I want you to notice that the people said, there go our sins. Our sins. The Day of Atonement was a communal affair. We are far too individualistic in the West. We think that we can do whatever we want and it doesn't impact anybody. So we say to people, you need to repent. You need forgiveness. You need to invite Jesus into your heart. You need forgiveness of sins. This type of individualism is rare in the Eastern mind. They always thought in terms of community. So when they came together before God, it was what have we done? What have we done, all of us, to offend you? We are joined together as a people. We need atonement. We need forgiveness. We need to meet God. We are guilty as a community. Now, this isn't so hard to understand, is it? Because everybody in this room knows that if you're in a family and you've got one family member that makes a bad decision, it affects everybody. And every family's always got one. (laughs) Nothing's done in isolation. And that's the way God wants the family of God to be. Understand that you're in this family, you're in this family. Your sin matters to the overall health of the entire people of God. We are far too individualistic. God never intended that to be. When you drop anchor in a fellowship at a church like this, your life matters. And so they ask, how have we fallen short? How have we failed God? How have we failed each other? How have we failed his community? May our sins be forgiven. Then look at verse 20.
1: This is Today with Jeff Vines. That's all we have time for, but next time, we will seek out what is most important in
0: our relationship with
1: Jesus in Where Is Your Head?
0: You have to come to Christ through a low door and you have to kneel before the cross so that Christ can become your Azazel and He will transfer all your guilt onto His head. He will separate your sins as far as the East is from the West and God will remember your sins no more.